Matthew chapter number 27, Matthew chapter 27, and uh, what a blessing it is to be with you tonight, amen, and uh, God's given us this beautiful weather, and uh, you say, preacher, did we need this rain? Well, I guess we did, because God gave it to us, amen, and uh, we praise His name for that, and uh, wanting enough to prevent us from being here tonight, amen, you're proof of that, and so I'm thankful that you're gathered here this evening, I trust that God's going to speak to your heart through His Word. Matthew chapter 27 I'd like to read just a few verses tonight and then go to the Lord in prayer and share with you a few thoughts that God laid on my heart. Matthew chapter 27, verse number 57. The Word of God says, When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be here. I pray that you'd take your word, Lord. It's a living word, and I pray that you'd make it live in our hearts. I pray that the Spirit of God would have free reign and course and liberty tonight to work in our hearts as he wills and as you deem fit. Lord, may we not uh, offer any resistance, any rebellion uh, tonight as he seeks to... Uh, to enter into the deepest uh, parts of our heart and our life and to expose those things which must be corrected, Lord, to strengthen those things that remain and to bring glory to Christ. We'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you know, uh, I, when we have holidays, and, and of course we preached a little bit this past Sunday about the, uh, the incident as the uh, Lord Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, and we often uh, call that Sunday Palm Sunday. And as we consider about this upcoming Sunday, which we call Easter or Resurrection Sunday, I'm often reminded that, you know, as we celebrate these holidays, what they really are are memorials. And what I mean by that is this, they're not necessarily anniversaries, uh, but rather they are memorials. I don't know that anybody, despite the most painstaking calculation, could tell you exactly which Sunday would correspond to the precise Sunday that Christ rose from the grave. I don't know that we could say definitively that it was on a Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Uh, I think we can say pretty authoritatively, though we do not know uh, which uh, Wednesday it was, but we could say that the Lord Jesus was not crucified on a Friday. Uh, we know that He was resurrected on a Sunday. And my basic math skills, and they're pretty basic, uh, but they tell me that you can't uh, squeeze in uh, 72 hours in between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning. And so the Lord Jesus, He would have had to have been crucified uh, at the latest on a Thursday morning, but probably more likely on a Wednesday morning. Uh, but really knowing which day and, and being able to say this is the anniversary of this, you could try to reckon it. Really our intent in observing those things is rather to memorialize what happened. Uh, we take sort of a cue from what the Lord Jesus says in the keeping of the Lord's Supper that we do these things in remembrance of Him. And it's not to suggest that uh, festivities on a Resurrection Sunday or on a Palm Sunday are an ordinance of the New Testament church, but it is to say that we do these things uh, in memoriam of what took place, maybe not on an equivalent Sunday, but on a Sunday when the Lord rose from the dead. Maybe not on an equivalent Sunday with Palm Sunday, but certainly on a day the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And so, with that thought in mind, I'm often reminded that uh, if we were to reckon that this Sunday were to be an anniversary, we don't know that it is, but uh, if it were to be an anniversary, then 
the best that we can deduce, we would imagine that just a few hours earlier, in corresponding time frame, uh, we would have uh, been observing the celebration or the anniversary of Calvary. In other words, it's very likely if we were to reckon this as corresponding so, that the Lord Jesus would have just not long before been taken off the cross and would have by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus uh, had his body, uh, they didn't embalm, but had his body anointed and been placed within the tomb. And so I found it to be, maybe it's a habit, I don't know what you'd call it, but a, a, a behavior of mine to often on this Wednesday before Easter take a few moments and go to Calvary and be reminded of some of the individuals and events that took place. Uh, there was one big one, and that's the sacrifice of the Son of God. But likewise, there was a whole myriad of events that were orbiting around this one singular world-transforming event that were taking place in the lives of the people that knew the Lord Jesus. We find one of them in our text before us. We're told of a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, meaning he was from that same area. Arimathea, it's called in this day. Uh, very likely it was uh, Ramah, the very same place that uh, Samuel's family was from. But wherever it might have been, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, it would appear he was a member of the Sanhedrin, an influential man, a wealthy man, who had came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And though he had for uh, uh, quite a while concealed that faith, in this moment, this transformative moment in his life, his faith seems to sort of break the cocoon of shame or of embarrassment and begin to shine forth as he goes, the Bible says in Mark's account, boldly and craves the body of Jesus from Pilate. In other words, we could say this, this is the moment that made Joseph of Arimathea. There are a whole, I was thinking about this earlier today, there's a whole slew of people that were pretty important on that day that today we don't know who they were. We don't know the names of the men that nailed the nails into Jesus' wrists and feet. We don't know what their names were. Uh, we don't know the names of most of the Sanhedrin uh, that, whose voices cried out, said crucify and crucify. But there's a few names that the Bible and the Holy Ghost have memorialized for us. Men like Simon the Cyrenian and people like Mary Magdalene and Salome and uh, people like this Joseph of Arimathea who is forever tied with this event of the crucifixion. And what I want to look at this evening when I consider this man that at this moment that is most pivotal in his life, I think it would be fair to say that Joseph of Arimathea was quite possibly the richest man in the entire world. Now you say, well preacher, you don't know what he had in his bank account. That's right, but I'm not talking about his bank account. I'm talking about the things he possessed in the Lord and of the Lord at this moment. What you'll find as we look at it is that the very same things that he had are the very same things in a spiritual sense that you and I enjoy today in Jesus Christ. So if we could say that Joseph was the richest man in this world, I think we could probably, Brother Jim, say that you and I as believers likewise are the richest people on God's earth. Now, what does the Bible teach us about him? We learn basically three things. Uh, it seems as though the only statements about this man are contained in the four gospel accounts that all record the same story. In other words, the only thing the Lord really wanted us to know about Joseph was what we find in our text here before us and in the other Gospels that record the same events. But we can learn a few things about him. Number one, we could note that he is a man of prosperity. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, he had riches. The Bible says in our text, when the even was come, verse 57, there came a rich man of Arimathea. 
In other words, he was a man that possessed worldly goods. Now, this seems obvious on its face, but can I remind you this? Where we're headed with this message, it wasn't the riches that was in his treasury that made him rich. In other words, the things that the world reckons as being valuable, things that men literally exhaust their lives in the pursuit of, are not the things that really make a man rich, really make him wealthy, and really makes life fulfilling. You know, one of the things that we're learning in these days, if you pay any attention to financial news, uh, is uh, that the financial system that we live with in this world is highly uh, slanted and highly biased, and it's a world in which men can work and labor their entire life and then watch every bit of that wealth and every bit of that labor and every bit of that treasure go uh, up in smoke in just a few moments. We saw a similar experience back in the Depression era when men literally flung themselves from buildings at the despair of considering that all they had worked for was gone. But you know, really it could happen to any of us. Everything we have, you see, you're only one financially debilitating disease or problem away from everything that you've got being completely gone. We're learning this more and more in these days and we're learning to put stock and value in things that are resilient to this world's monetary system. We're learning the importance of building relationships with people you can depend on and building self, uh, self-reliance self and independence as regard things like what we eat and, and, and protection and shelter and things like that. Listen, I'm for all that. I don't have a bunker. If I did have a bunker, I wouldn't tell you about it. But I don't have a bunker. But if you've got one and want to give it away, I'll take it. It's probably a good thing to have. I'm not opposed to that. Can I remind you, even those things can be gone in a few moments. Uh, even those things can be gone in a few moments. You see, meaning in life, uh, fulfillment in life, and we could even say wealth in the truest sense of the word. Because what is wealth? Wealth is a way of talking about something of rarity that could, that is desirable. Can I tell you that what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is rare as regards what man can afford, what man can provide. There's only one place that you can get it, and that's from the Lord Jesus Christ. But number two, it is highly sought after. Now, men may say they don't want Jesus, but you better believe they do want what Jesus gives. They want peace of mind. They want forgiveness. They want hope. They want life. And we have all those things in Christ Jesus. So he was a man of prosperity. He had riches. We learn in Luke's account that he was a man of position. Listen to what the Bible says in Luke 23, 50. It says, Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor. Now what that means is not that he was a guidance counselor or a financial counselor, but what it means is he was on the Sanhedrin. He was part of this body of 70 influential men that presided over the civic affairs of the land of uh, Israel and of Jerusalem in particular. And he was part of that group. In fact, we're told in another gospel account that he did not consent under the death of Jesus. Now, why did it tell us that? Because he was part of that same body that was desiring the death of Jesus, but he did not consent to it. Well, who was that body? That was the Sanhedrin. He was a man that would have been uh, highly regarded in the world around him. Then it goes on and says this about him. He was a good man. And he was a just man. In other words, he was a man of reputation. When you said the name Joseph of Arimathea, it carried weight. Now the Bible says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And one of the things that you learn as your life marches forward is how important a reputation is. 
we better guard our testimony. We better guard uh, what men think of us, at least in as much as we're maintaining a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about uh, men thinking that we're special. I'm not talking about men standing in awe of who we are, but I'm talking about uh, being sure to guard and safeguard and vouchsafe that testimony of Jesus Christ. Because when you squander your reputation, you'll find out it's pretty hard to win back. You mess up your testimony. It takes you it takes you a lot longer to build a testimony than it does to blow a testimony. He was a man that had position. He was a man that had reputation. But I would say this: it wasn't that position that made him a wealthy man. Uh, in fact, we don't know anything about him until this very moment. Wouldn't you think that if Joseph's reputation uh, was the greatest thing about him in God's eyes, wouldn't you think that if that was the preeminent thing, God would have talked about it long before this point? But like a glimpse, like a flash in the night, we just have him appear and then disappear, and he is eclipsed by the cross of Calvary. Because it's not reputation that God's chiefly concerned with. The whole world can speak well of you and we ought not seek to make ourselves a spectacle or a pariah. I don't believe God's glorified or honored by that. Let me say that if we'll live for Jesus Christ, there'll be enough folks that scratch their heads at us and that wonder why we are the way we are. We shouldn't seek to make a spectacle of ourselves, but by the same token, all the reputation the world can pile on a man is not worth much if it doesn't mean anything to God. He was a man of position. Then I would say this, but we learn that he's a man of prudence. Listen to what it says in Mark 15, 43. It says, Joseph of Arimathea. Then it says this, an honorable counsel, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. So he was not just on this body of the Sanhedrin, but he was an honorable counselor, meaning that he was one of them that men listened closely to. Now, why did they do this? Well, he had riches and he had reputation, but he had reason as well. We could use this term, wisdom. He was a man that was known for his wisdom. He was a man that most times men wanted to listen to. They knew that he would give them a right answer, that they would get, that he would guide them correctly. And let me say, it's good to be a prudent individual. Uh, the Bible speaks uh, speaks immensely on the topic of wisdom. And I would say this, we need to have a biblical perspective of what wisdom is. But in as much as we equate reason and knowledge with wisdom, I think it's a good thing. I'm not against uh, getting an education. I'm not against uh, getting uh, you know uh, schooled up a little bit in your mind and learning some things. But understand, you can have all that and it means nothing. There are plenty of people, you know, the Bible talks about the wisdom of this world and says that God hath made foolish the wisdom of this world. Uh, you, you know this, I, you've met people, and I have too, that were educated beyond their intelligence. Some of the most educated people in this world are some of the dumbest. And I'm not against education. I'm not saying education made them that way. That's already dumb. It's just education, you know, amplified it. You know, education gave them bold enough to, uh, you know, open their mouth and talk. You can get by seeming pretty smart if you'll keep your mouth shut. But people get get education, it emboldens them, and very often, uh, really what it is is this, they've gained knowledge without true wisdom. Uh, they have academics, and there's nothing wrong with academics. I'm not against it. I don't believe God's against it. I, I believe God expects us to further ourselves to the best of our ability, but understand that none of that... You see, it wasn't any of that that made Joseph a wealthy man. So why do you know that, preacher? Because he had all those things, and God never said anything about him. I do not know how old Joseph was at this time, but I think, uh, and certainly we know that a man had to be a certain age for to be on the Sanhedrin, had to be married, had to have family, so on and so forth. We can at least expect that Joseph was probably in the middle of life or maybe the later portion of the middle of life. And for all those years, God hadn't said anything about him. But in this moment, God draws our attention to him. In other words, it's almost like it's not really Joseph. 
but rather it's what Joseph came into contact with. It's what happened to him in this moment that made Joseph significant. You say, preacher, you said he's the richest man in the world, but you said everything he's got uh, does not make a man rich. Well, that's true up to now, but let me say this, three things tonight. Joseph was the richest man in the world at that moment because he possessed three things. Number one, I want you to notice with me. Uh, look in our text. The Bible says in verse number 58, he went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Let me say number one tonight. Why was this man so wealthy? Why was he the richest man? Well, it wasn't what was in his treasury, but it was because he possessed the crucified body of Jesus. What he had in his possession, nobody else in the world had. There's your rarity. What he had in his possession was intensely desirable, not necessarily in the world's eyes, but it was in the eyes of God. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that the Lord would uh, look on him and be satisfied. God was looking for it if no one else was. And I thought about it this way. The reason it made him wealthy was because he had the crucified body of Jesus and number one, the forgiveness that that brings. Now let me be clear in what I'm about to say. It was not him physically possessing the physical body of Jesus that gave him forgiveness. It was his faith in that finished work on Calvary. But I would say this, if in this moment Joseph could not have taken possession of this body, it would have been because that body had still been alive. The very fact that he can take possession of it is because that body has been broken and crucified for you and for I. It is the finished work of Christ on Calvary. It is the fact of His death that makes that significant. You remember what Christ said, and Paul echoes it for us in 1 Corinthians 11, says that when Jesus had given thanks, He broke the bread and he, he broke it and said, take and eat. And then He said this, this is my body which is broken for you. Uh, we will in the month of May observe the Lord's Supper again, but you know, when we take that bread... It's just bread. It don't become anything other than bread. Uh, it, it's not bread. It's not anything other than bread before we get it. It's not anything other than bread after we have have tasted of it. It's not anything other than bread in the midst of it. But you understand that at this moment, he's holding not the bread. He's holding the body itself. And he, in holding that body, came close to that body and into contact with that body whereby forgiveness has been purchased for the entire world if they'll come to Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says this, in whom we have redemption through His blood. Well, why do we have His blood? Because His body was broken. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Let me make this simple statement to you and I'll move on. If you didn't have nothing else in the world, if you've got forgiveness from God, you're a wealthy person. You're a wealthy person. If you had nothing else, and we could all, if we were just to go ahead and be humble and honest, we'd admit that God has blessed us with much far beyond that. I don't know about you, but I got more stuff than, than anybody probably ought to have, and God's blessed me immensely. But even if I lost all of those things, I'd still be the richest man in the world. Cry forgiveness through Jesus Christ. I think he was wealthy because he had the crucified body of Jesus and the forgiveness it brings. But not only that, he had the crucified body of Jesus and the fellowship that it brings. Listen to what John says about this same uh, episode in the life of Joseph. It says in John 19.38, that after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. Now listen to verse 39. And there came also Nicodemus which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they 
the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. In other words, because he went and got this body of Jesus, he found a companion, a cohort, a fellow laborer that was willing to come alongside and help him and assist him in the ministry and tasks that God had given him to do. You know, we are a rich people. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about you and I. I'm talking about Wall Ridge Baptist Church. We're a rich people because number one, we've been forgiven our sins. But number two, God has knit us together with a body of believers that love each other, that love Christ. We don't have to go this thing alone. I'm often struck, and I I was blessed by the testimony that Diane gave through that card. Imagine that, all those years, and, and, uh, and, and nobody's ever invited that individual to church. And I thought to myself, well, praise God, that's the last time he'll ever be able to say that. Somebody's invited him to church. And I thought, how blessed you and I are. There are believers all over the world that have to walk for hours and pass through checkpoints and imperil their lives get into a place where they can fellowship together, where they can gather around the body of Jesus and worship together and fellowship together. But here, this individual, he had someone right there with him just like you and I do today. I'm saying this, if you're a member of a New Testament church that preaches the Bible and believes the Bible, you're a wealthy person. You're a wealthy person. Every single day, my inbox is flooded by missionaries going to places that if they tell the truth, uh, there can be uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals and not one church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet here we are blessed, man, to get together, to worship with folks. And I know we don't always get along. I know things aren't always done the way we wish that they were. I know we always think, well, maybe this could be done better or that could be done better. Hey, man, praise God, we've got a place to worship Him. We're a wealthy people, you know that. We're a wealthy people that we can worship together. There's some people that come to know the Lord and live in such a dark environment that they might go many years before meeting someone else that's a kindred spirit that believes anything close to what they do. And you're surrounded by a group of people. There may be small differences of opinion about things that by and large, though, can fellowship on almost every page of this book. What a blessing that is. I'd say this, he was a wealthy man because of the fellowship that that brings. You know, that makes sense when we think about the body of Jesus. Because listen to what Paul says about the body of Christ, but he's speaking in a spiritual sense in 1 Corinthians 12. He says this in verse number 12, As the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. He says, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Now, lest you think he's meaning body in a generic sense, he goes on to talk about how a body has many members, has uh, feet and hands and eyes and ears, and how they're not all the same, but they all have a function and a role. But listen to what he says in verse 27. He says, now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. In other words, there's a deep connection between what Joseph is doing here. What's he doing? He's going and getting the body of Christ. And you say, preacher, what what happened to us when we got born again? We didn't go get the body of Christ. We got put in the body of Christ. Man, what a wealthy people we are. We ought to never take it for granted. And I think and trust this to be true, that what's happened over this past year and a half, if nothing else, you say, well, preacher, some folks disagree about this and that. Some folks got out. Yeah, listen, I know. I know there's been a lot of frustrating things over the past year. But you know what it ought to have done? It ought to put a love in the heart of God's people for the house of God. Man, how precious it is that we can worship together, that we can meet together, that we can fellowship together. That's a precious thing. We are a wealthy people that we have a, a New Testament church, the body of Christ. So I think he was wealthy because he had the crucified body of Christ. Let me say number two, I think he was a wealthy man because he had the capability 
to bless Jesus. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible says in our text, look down in verse number 60, that he took the body of Jesus and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. In other words, the very fact that in this moment, Joseph had something he could give to Jesus is a reason he was a wealthy man. Imagine, in fact, the reason you and I know his name is because of this. Uh, Had he not had this means, this ability to minister to the broken body, to the lifeless body of Christ in that moment, we probably would have never known who he is. What a blessing in that time. In other words, instead of Joseph saying, man, you're telling me i got to give him my tomb? Where am I going to go? No, instead he said, I would be honored for him to lay in my tomb. We don't know about that tomb because it was Joseph's tomb. We know about that tomb because it was Jesus' tomb. Uh, there's all, and there's been for years, and, and some of y'all, you, uh, you may have been to the Holy Land, you may have been to one of these sites, there's been six or seven quote-unquote tombs uh, throughout the years, and, and we really don't know which tomb uh, was the very one. And, and it's sort of like those, those holidays. I mean, I think the very fact that we memorialize that there's an empty tomb, whether or not which tomb it is, it don't matter, because His tomb is empty. Amen. But you know, it's interesting to me to note, I don't know if this is true or not, but I know there's the possibility... Uh, that if he had wanted to, do you know that later on, uh, Jesus, he didn't want that tomb forever. He only needed it for about three days. Joseph gives it to him, but we can imagine, I think very practically so, that Jesus gave it right back to Joseph. I don't know if Joseph was buried in it after that. I, it could be that one of those tombs, it could be the one that Jesus laid in is, is not empty today, but not because he's not in it. It could be that Joseph's in I don't know, but what I do know is this, the very fact that he had the ability, the capacity to do something in that moment for the Son of God made him a wealthy man. He had the means to bless him personally. You know, you say, preacher, how do you know that we as a people today, I don't have much in my bank account. You know, you may not, but the very fact that you can do any part in serving God makes you a wealthy person. Uh, Untold men of wealth were born and died and lived in between that period and today, but we know none of them. In fact, we don't know any of them for the things that they accrued, but we know this man because of what he gave away and because he gave it away to God himself. You know, God does not reckon a man by what he can accrue, but by what he gives away to the cause of Christ. That's what curries favor in the eyes of God. That's what makes a man of preeminence and of uh, of reputation in the eyes of God is not somebody that can pile everything together. In fact, you know, there's an example in Scripture of a man that, that gathers everything together. In fact, he gathers it all together. He fills his barn and uh, then he runs out of room so he tears down those barns, builds bigger barns, gathers more stuff, tears those barns down, and gathers more stuff, builds bigger barns. You know what the Bible says about that man? calls him a fool. He says, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. So the men that seek to gather things together for their keeping and hoarding, they're considered fools. But Joseph, he was a wealthy man, not because of what he still had, but because of what he had given away. And the very fact that you or I could have some small part, you know, I'm sure that in Joseph's mind, what he was doing was probably a small thing. If he is a wealthy man, uh, the means to be able to buy another tomb probably wasn't beyond him. And I'm sure in that moment what he was doing, he thought was just a small thing. Well, I'm just giving away. And you can imagine now, listen, grave plots are not cheap. That's one of the things. You're officially an adult when you go shopping for grave, grave plots. Uh, grave plots are not, are not uh, you know, cheap things. But in the grand scheme of life, they're not vastly expensive. You'll spend a few thousand dollars maybe to buy, but in the grand scheme of things, if you were giving that to a precious and cherished friend, you probably wouldn't think you were doing much. 
But you know what happened? That tomb was of no consequence until He took that tomb and gave it to Jesus. Now, ever since that day, we've been talking about that tomb. In other words, Joseph took this small part, something that he as a wealthy man probably thought was not very significant, but it was a way to minister to Jesus. It was a way to bless Jesus. And so he gives it to Jesus. Jesus takes it, hangs on to it for three days, and then it becomes the most famous tomb ever throughout human history. What a blessing that was. I don't know whatever happened to that. Men that say they do cannot really say that with full confidence. But I would imagine this, that if you could verifiably prove that you owned that tomb, that it was yours and you put it up for auction, it's probably unreal how much money it would go for today. See, in that moment, he was given a small thing, but God takes the small things we do and multiplies them for His glory The very fact that we could even do any small thing. You say, preacher, I can't give God much. No, but the fact that you can give Him anything makes you a wealthy person. Makes you a wealthy person. I've been watching. I don't know if you've seen any of these things. Some of this is going to sound wild to you. Have you seen anything about what they call these NFTs? Does anybody know what that means? Raise your hand if you... NFT. Me, Brock, Caleb are the only people that know what that means. I got my work cut out for me. I don't know how I'm going to explain this to you. An NFT is a piece of technology that is proprietary, meaning there can only be one of them. And they've started auctioning these off. What I'm about to say ain't going to make no sense to you whatsoever. So just buckle in. It's said that uh, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, somehow created an NFT out of the first tweet that was ever made on Twitter. In other words, it's a piece of digital content and nobody else can make this digital content. So he, he took this tweet you say, what is it? I don't know what it, I don't know what it looks like. I don't even know how this is done. But he auctioned it for something like $2 million. And you think to yourself, why, oh, why would anybody pay $2 million for a piece of information? Why would they even do that? I have no clue. All I know is it has value because somebody wants it. It has value because somebody wants it. That's the only reason. It's not something useful. It's not something they can do anything with. They're not going to take it home and put it in a display case. But for some reason, they'll buy it. And here's why. Because there's only one of them. So it gives it value. You know, you look at what Joseph did here and you say, well, preacher, why would that be so? Why would that make him a wealthy man? Because there was somebody that wanted it. Uh, There was somebody that wanted that tomb. You say, who was it that wanted it? Well, God wanted that tomb. You know what makes who you and I are and what you and I have valuable? The fact that God would use us. We may not be very usable or very desirable in the eyes of the world. But think about the fact that the God of glory would pay the, the price of His only begotten Son to redeem us and to save us. And then beyond that, He's so interested in using you and I for His glory that He would indwell us by the Spirit of God, put us in the New Testament church and teach us the Word of God and give us opportunity to serve Him. What a glorious God we have. We may look at it and say it ain't much, but evidently God thinks it's something. We may look at it and say, well, I don't see how it's valuable, but God thinks it's valuable. I I think he he was rich because he had the capability, the means to bless Jesus personally. But then number two, I thought about this. He had the ministry to bless him prophetically. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, in Isaiah 53, 9, I don't know if you realize this, but Joseph plays a pivotal role in fulfilling a piece of Bible prophecy. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 53, 9 about the Lord Jesus and his death. It says that he made his grave with the wicked That's speaking of the thief that was on the cross, the one that rejected him, and with the rich in his death. In other words, it was prophesied of Jesus that in his death he would come into contact both with wicked men and with rich men. He would come into contact with the wicked 
thieves on the cross. And thank the Lord one of them didn't stay wicked. He got born again. The other one rejected him, remained wicked. But even so, both of them were wicked men when he came into contact with them. And then in his burial, he came into contact with Joseph of Arimathea, the rich in his death. Now you say, well, preacher, that's good. But what does that mean? Well, I thought about this. Joseph, in doing this simple thing, he played a pivotal role, something that in the mind of God had been foreordained, prescribed, laid down for hundreds and hundreds of years. And because Joseph was willing in that moment to give what he had to God, he fit like a puzzle piece in the plan of God in fulfilling the work and will of God. You say, preacher, why, why would you say that we're us humble folks like us going to little church on Wall Ridge or why would you consider us to be wealthy people? Because listen, we may not have a lot of wealth in our bank account. We may not have a lot of what the world considers desirable. But do you realize that you and I, like a puzzle piece, fit into the will and work of God in a discreet and distinct way that God has designed for you and for us? If Joseph of Arimathea had not been a financially wealthy man, he could not have played this role. In other words, it wasn't just anybody that could have given his tomb to Jesus. And in the same way, while I will admit that God is not short on people that he can use, and if we are unwilling to be used of him, he can use someone else, but that does not mean there is not a distinct role for us that is custom designed, curated and tailored for our life and for our capability. In other words, uh, though it's true that we can all be replaced, God would rather not replace us in the work of God. He has a distinct place for us. The fact that we could have a part, man, I mean, when you think about the plan of God's redemption, when you think about the work that God's doing in this world, I'm talking about from before the world was created, all the way to the consummation of every bit of it, when the kingdom is delivered up to the Father and we're living in an endless day. What a vast and glorious and amazing plan that God has. And to think it could include these people right here on Wall Ridge Road. I'd say that makes us valuable, wouldn't you? I'd say that makes us wealthy people. So I think he was, I think he was wealthy because he had the, the crucified body of Jesus. He had the capability to bless Jesus, but finally, and I'm done tonight, I would say that he was uh, a wealthy man because he had a courageous boldness for Jesus. Now when we think of bold, we don't think of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, very often, the two men that are mentioned in this passage, in fact, when we think of boldness, we think of them as the antithesis, as the opposite of boldness, And with good reason, because when we read about Joseph, one of the things that's told us uh, is the constraint of his cowardice. Listen to what it says in John 19, 38. It says, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. We're told, and it's almost hinted at in the very next verse, that Nicodemus was a man who had come to Jesus by night, and we're told elsewhere that he did this because he feared what people might say about him. In other words, these were men that had once battled with being bold. Can I tell you something? Let me encourage you tonight. If you struggle being bold, you're not alone. Uh, lots of God's children struggle being bold. You ain't the first person to struggle in being bold to go up and witness somebody. Uh, can I be honest with you? I, it, it terrifies me to death to go up and talk to somebody about the Lord. Uh, probably everybody in here that is faithful in soul winning and giving out tracts would admit the same thing, that their flesh bullies them and their flesh uh, tries to browbeat them and they get that flutter in their heart and their stomach knots up. Everybody gets nervous. We all have that cowardice in us. We all have that timidity in us. These were men that had allowed it to be the predominant characteristic in their life, so much so that it crippled them in their walk with Christ. I would say this, man, it was good that they came in this moment. And I'm going to say a word about that 
uh, here in a little while, but wouldn't it have been better if they had come before? Wouldn't it have been better if Joseph, I mean, Joseph and Nicodemus, presumably both these men were on the Sanhedrin, maybe they could have made a difference had they spoken up. I mean, Joseph is an honorable counselor. He's a good and a just man. People listen to what he said. Maybe he could have made a difference, but sadly, he allowed his fear to bully him away from speaking out for Jesus. You know, I would say this, that, uh, you know, Paul talks about the gospel and he says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. In other words, the gospel is a treasure. It's not us. It's not our eloquence. It's not our memorization of Scripture. It's not our, our logic or reason in being able to witness or, or convince someone. None of that is what's valuable. There's lots of people that, that, that have a lot of good reason. There's lots of people that have intelligence. There's lots of people that can speak well. The thing that saves a man and transforms his life is not the earthen vessel. It's the treasure hidden within it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I, if you want my opinion, I think when Paul uses that analogy, I think he's thinking about Gideon and those uh, lamp, those those, uh, those pitchers that covered the lamps whenever they were going to war with the Midianites. And it wasn't until the pitcher was broken that the light shined. It wasn't until it was destroyed uh, that the light was effective. And I think when he talks about this earthen vessel, I don't think he's saying we ought to protect it. I don't think he's saying we ought to break it for the glory of God. I think he's saying God's going to take us and break us that He might shine more clearly in our life. In other words, it is not us, it's the treasure within us. It's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we allow the cares of this world to stifle that, if we allow, uh, you used to sing it all the time about, uh, you know, letting your uh, light of mine shine. Uh, don't put it under a bushel. Don't let the devil blow it out, right? You know what's happened to a lot of us, man? We've done built a house up under the bushel. We've got used to not letting that light shine. Uh, we've let the devil come through like a hurricane and bully us into not being a witness. And, and that's how these men were. They, they had allowed the fear of man to keep them from being a witness. But you know, the story don't end there. In fact, God tells it in the same breath, really. I, I love the way Mark says it. And it's, it's in every of the four gospels, but I like the way that, that Mark says this in Mark 15, 43. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate. He went in boldly. He didn't come in timidly. He did not come in and say, Mr. Pilate, I know i got no business being in here. But rather, he came in boldly unto him as a man with authority, as a man that had a right to ask for that body, as a man outraged by the injustice that had taken place. He went in boldly unto Pilate. And the Bible says this, he craved the body of Jesus. The word implies that he wouldn't take no for an answer. You know what a craving is, right? Uh, when you wake up in the middle of the night and that, uh, that, that pint of ice cream is sitting in your freezer calling to you, and you, you toss this way and toss that way and you can't go to bed because you just keep hearing it, you just keep hearing it, and nothing will satisfy but get up and go and get that ice cream. Well, uh, this is how uh, Joseph was about the body of Jesus. Uh, undoubtedly, with the bureaucracy of government, they probably, Pilate probably tried to put him off. And, well, let's wait, let's wait till this, let's wait till that. But he would not take no for an answer. He was bold, he was persistent in his witness. In fact, it sounds to me, though, he was a man that was noted for the constraint of his cowardice. It sounded to me like he had conquered his cowardice. It sounded to me, in other words, like he had got over it. And God had given him a holy boldness to go in and to beg the body of Jesus. Can I tell you this? We, we all have that fear of being a witness and a testimony. But you know, when, when we let our, our flesh be mortified, when we allow the Holy Ghost to have the reign in our life and with our lips, and we close our eyes and swallow our fear and go on and 
talk to somebody about the Lord. That's a precious thing. That's a valuable thing. In a day where social pressure is being weaponized to get people to quit talking about the important things to them, and particularly against believers, we have been, we've done been convinced it's inappropriate to witness at work, it's inappropriate to witness with friends, it's inappropriate to witness with strangers when we're out in public. When are we going to quit asking for permission from the world to be a witness and just start sharing the gospel? At some point we're going to have to get over it and realize people's dying and going to hell uh, whether we meet them at the appropriate moment to share the gospel or not. Uh, we need to conquer that coward. So how do we do that? Well, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts about uh, Peter and John that uh, whenever they had been around them, they took knowledge of these men uh, that they had been with Jesus when they saw their boldness. In other words, uh, they they noticed that Jesus had rubbed off on them. They had that same manner of talk, that same compassion, that same straightforwardness, that same willingness to speak directly to a man's need that Jesus had had. In other words, their boldness came from spending time with the Lord. Uh, how was it that they had boldness? Well, after the crucifixion, of Christ whenever Pilate determines in his heart that he's going to go claim that body, it gives him boldness. And I'm saying this, the very fact that he had an opportunity to minister to Jesus, which in our day, there's a million ways we can minister to the Lord, but a good way is by being a testimony for Him, by being a witness for Him. And the very fact that we, that God would embolden us and enable us to be used of Him, that's a precious thing. We spend all of our time longing for the things we don't have instead of appreciating the things we do have. Now, I'm not talking about the old broke-down car that you've got that is still running. I'm not talking about the old set of clothes that you wish you'd get a new set, but yours still cover your, your body. I'm not talking about the home that you wish had a, another bedroom or an addition, but it still keeps you dry. I'm talking about the spiritual things we have. We all look outward at a world and say, boy, I'd be content if I had that. But you know, contentment has never come from without. It's always come from above. It's always come from the Lord. Every good gift, every perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of triumph. It's all come from the Lord. And I'd say this, the very things that we've said about Joseph tonight, we could say about every born-again believer. You have the ability to minister to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have His forgiveness. You have this fellowship of believers. And you have, if you'll go to Him, the opportunity to have boldness to be a witness for Him. I'll tell you this, staying away from Jesus ain't going to make you more bold. Running from the problem ain't going to make you more bold. The only thing that's going to give you the confidence and the boldness you need to be a witness is to get closer to Him. That's how the disciples did it. That's how Joseph did it. That's how we'll do it as well. Spend time with Him and boldness will follow. I'd say tonight we're a wealthy people. And you say, preacher, how am I supposed to respond to that? Well, there's a couple ways. One, there might be some of this wealth that you're sitting on. You say, what do you mean? Well, I'm not talking about your financial money. I'm talking about you may have sin in your life. And you're sitting on that crucified body. You're ignoring what He did for you. You're sitting on that sin. You're ignoring it instead of bringing it to Him. Don't sit on that wealth. Bring it to the Lord and cash a little bit of it in. In other words, come to Him and ask forgiveness. Utilize that great wealth that we have in Calvary. It could be that you have allowed things to be a distraction. You're here tonight. I'm not here to fuss at anybody that's in church on Wednesday night. But you might have not been appreciating or enjoying the fellowship of believers and the strength that it gives. Why don't you make a commitment to do that and to be present in the house of God? It may be that you have allowed the fear of man to bully you from being a witness and a testimony. Why don't you get up closer to Jesus and allow Him to give you the boldness that you so desperately 
need. I'm saying if there's any of this wealth that we're sitting on instead of spending for His glory, any of these resources He's giving that we're not utilizing, that we're not letting Him use in our lives, we ought to commit to do that. But now you may say, well, preacher, I'm doing everything right. And you know, that's really when we say the Lord can't deal with us, that's really what we're saying. We say, I'm doing everything. And, and if you are, man, praise the Lord. But you know what you ought to do? You ought to thank Him because every bit of this spiritual wealth you have, it all came by grace. You didn't earn any of it. You didn't create any of it. You didn't drum any, any of it up. It all came by His mercy and His grace. So if nothing else, we could with gratitude in our heart give thanks unto Him. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. You know you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You can come. You can find a place in this altar. If God spoke to your heart, you can deal with the Lord even right now. Father, bless this invitation and may it glorify Your Son. I love You, Lord, and I ask it in Christ's name. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed.